Hi, I'm Ryan Miner. I'm the host of a Minor Detail podcast where it's all about Maryland. We have a no-holds-barred conversation featuring Maryland newsmakers and newsbreakers, journalists, reporters, politicos, politicians, policy wonks, prognosticators, political activists, organizers, community leaders, and so many more. Man, that's a lot of peace. Here on a Minor Detail Podcast, we get to the bottom of every story. We talk about news and politics in an open and honest format. And we find the minor details because every detail matters. You can follow us on the web at a aminordetailpodcast.com and aminordetail.com for the latest Maryland news and politics. Thank you so much for listening. <clears throat> Enjoy the show. Well, everybody, it is an honor and pleasure to, again, be here on a Minor Detail podcast. I am your fearless host, Ryan Miner. Thanks for listening. I'm on the web at aminordetail.com and aminordetailpodcast.com with all of our latest episodes. Tonight, of course, our resident analyst, uh, my dear friend, and someone who needs no introduction, but I'll certainly give him one, the inimitable, incomparable, and unparalleled Len Foxwell, who is in the car driving back from uh, the most famous Johns Hopkins University from teaching a course tonight. Len, it's always a pleasure to have you, and welcome back. Thank you, my friend, for doing this again tonight. Ryan, I feel like I did back in 1992, and I'll tell you what I was doing. I was vacationing in Tampa, Florida, where my parents had a home. And I went to the local wrestling matches. WCW had a show. And on that very night, in that very arena, Ric Flair, the incomparable <laughs> one, made his return to WCW. And it was unexpected. And the place just exploded. They blew the, they blew the proverbial roof off of the arena. And that's what I feel like we're doing tonight. I feel like I'm watching Ryan Miner come back to blog talk radio the legend returneth just like rick flair returned to the scene of his greatest crimes all those years ago it's a privilege to be here to watch history being remade and all kidding aside and i appreciate you having me pal it's always a privilege absolutely that is richard morgan flair better known as rick flair the professional wrestling manager and one of the all-time wwe greats um we could go on for hours talking about some of the greatest wrestlers in our lifetime, but if we did that, we probably could not get to the topics at hand. And look, Lynn, probably not. I, I asked you to come on tonight because we always do these, as I said, some of these the best, some of the best shows that I've ever done, where uh, you have joined the podcast and we've just kind of rolled with the flow and as you said, going off topic about some of the Maryland politics right now. And I wanted to give an update on what's happening in Maryland politics. And people who follow politics closely know what's going on. They understand what is happening. But, you know, it's always nice to just kind of shoot the breeze with someone who, whom you respect and who you enjoy talking politics with. And, you know, Lynn, you, you've got a reputation that there's nobody – in the state better than Lynn Foxwell who can just shoot the breeze and talk politics and reminisce. And, you know, 
I'm, I was thinking about this past week, and I sent you a text last Thursday about uh, what's happening and how Maryland politics in 2019 is shaping up. On Thursday, Lynn, we, as we all know, sadly we lost um, the House Oversight Chairman Elijah Cummings, a longtime great in our state of Maryland, someone who has committed most of his life to public service. And Lynn, you know, you you've been in politics in Maryland for you know around in 25, 26 years or more, and I I know that that Congressman Cummings was a a former state delegate member in the House of Delegates. Lynn, do you have any reflections about the late Elijah Cummings? You know, the first time I I, I saw and met Congressman Cummings was in 1994. I was working on my first ever political campaign right out of college, and then Delegate Cummings came to the uh, came to the Bethel AME Church in Cambridge to deliver a sermon. There was a special sermon on Founders Day at Bethel AME, and the, and the, and the title of his remarks call, was called "When the Hungry Meets the Hurting," and it was a sermon. He delivered completely by memory. There wasn't a single scrap of paper in his hand or in his pocket. He just spoke from the heart about the obligation that we have. I remember a certain phrase he used. He called it the obligation of our survival to use our talents, to use our our gifts, to reach out and to look out for those who aren't as blessed. Those in the those in the in the shadows of life, as Hubert Humphrey said, and to this day, I've never, I've never heard anyone speak with such moral clarity or passion. And it's one thing to deliver a good sermon, but over the 25 years that followed that sermon, I saw this man just consistently live by the progressive tenets of his politics and live by the moral clauses of his faith. And he devoted his entire life. To looking out for those who had no other voice and who would easily, absolutely, certainly be overlooked were it not for that booming voice. And I'll tell you, as a, as a member of the Comptroller's Office, we get a lot of calls from members of Congress because, you know, people don't, you know, taxpayers, when they get in a jam, they don't know the difference necessarily between federal or state or local, or sometimes they have a federal tax issue that is also a state issue, so they'll start with our congressman. I, I've, I've received more calls from Elijah Cummings' office uh, over my 12 years in the Comptroller's office than I have from every other member of the Maryland congressional delegation combined. Wow. And that's not a knock on them. That's just a reflection of him and the, and the, the way that people would reach out who had no other way, no other option or nowhere else to turn. They turned to him, and he always came through. He was a giant. He'll never, ever, ever be forgotten. I I've watched the the pouring of support from elected officials all over the country, but especially here in Maryland. And there's a consistent theme, and you pointed it out with respect to the late Elijah Cummings, and that is moral clarity and decency. And Lynn, I, I want to read a passage to you from a transcript where the former House Oversight Committee man was 
was with his committee back in February, February 27th. And if you remember, that's when they brought Michael Cohen, President Trump's former attorney, his fixer, so to speak, before the House Mm -hmm. Oversight Committee. And I watched that live, and I remember watching Elijah Cummings, who's the chairman, make his final remarks. And it was a speech that I just I never will forget because it it just showed not a congressman at that moment, but two men sitting across from one another, and one of them who was ready to go to jail for crimes that he committed, and another one who could have shaken his finger and said, you know, what a terrible person. Instead, he showed decency. He showed humanity. And Cohen was sitting there, and this is what Cohen said, and I I just want to read this because it's so touching. He said – this is, and I'm reading directly from the transcript. Cohen said, let me tell you the picture that that really, really pained me. You were leaving the you were leaving the prison. You were leaving the courthouse, and I guess that your daughter had braces or something on. And Cummings said, "Man, that thing, man, that hurt me. As a father of two daughters, it hurt me, and I can imagine how it must feel for you. But I'm just saying to you, I want to first of all thank you. I know that this has been hard. I know that you faced a lot. I know that you are worried about your family, but this is part of your destiny." And hopefully this portion of your destiny will lead to a better, a better Michael Cohen, a better Donald Trump, a better United States of America, and a better world. And I mean that from the depths of my heart. And he said, and this is the indelible passage, when we're dancing with the angels, the question will be asked, in 2019, what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? Did we stand on the sidelines and say nothing? And Lynn I, I, I almost get choked up reading that, thinking of the caliber of character that it must have taken Elijah Cummings to draft those words and then speak it before a man who really did a, a monumental disservice to the country acting as Donald Trump's fixer. And that's that's how I remember Elijah Cummings. Well, two things really stand out there, Ryan, and I agree with you. You can, you can hear those words, and you can get choked up. You can get emotional because it's as dads, we can all relate to it. Two yeah. things stand out. One is the the moral authority that he had to say those words. You're right. There's somebody who had done a profound disservice to the republic. But it also speaks to the credibility and the stature that he had within the Democratic Party and within our American political process that he could reach out and say those words across the deepest of partisan divides to Donald Trump's hatchet man without earning criticism or enmity from within his own party. We live in deeply divided times. And too often in our, in our society, when, when a, a member of our political system reaches out across the aisle and shows empathy to someone from the opposing side or someone with an opposing viewpoint, well, you're attacked as, subscribing to that person's character or ideology. Elijah Cummings, no one was going to question his, his credibility, his, his morality, or his values. He had fought the battles for years and years and years in the trenches, and no one was going to wag their finger at Elijah Cummings. He's just about the only person I can think of in this moment who could, act, who could actually pull something like that off and emerge without a scratch. 
the president even tweeted kind remarks. I don't know who's to say if the, it was sincere or not. My my hope is that it was sincere. But I have to think, Lynn, for months the president attacked Elijah Cummings and referred to him as King Elijah and disparaged him after someone went into Baltimore City with a video camera and highlighted the underbelly of our city, our home city, Baltimore City. That's where I have spent a significant portion of my time and my life with my family. And when the president attacked Baltimore City, understanding that Baltimore certainly has its fair share of issues, has its getting major city. But when this, it felt though, then especially personal when this president attacked Baltimore. When he doesn't give a damn about Baltimore City, it was used as a political weapon aimed at Elijah Cummings, who's been in Congress for several years. And no, Congressman Cummings was not a perfect representative. No one is a perfect representative. But when the president was attacking him in tweet after tweet nonstop for something that was completely asinine, I got to tell you, Lynn, I took it personally. I really took it personally. I did too. I did too. And it too. pissed me off. It pissed me I, off. Especially when you look at the when you look at the life that Donald Trump has led, and the the way in which he has conducted himself as a can first as a candidate for president, and then as president of the United States. We all, we can go on. We could fill the, we could fill this hour and several more, talking about the ways in which he has defiled the White House. Suffice to say. Donald Trump ain't fit to carry Elijah Cummings' bags, not on his no. best day. Um, no. And you're right. He 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 used he used ball he used Baltimore as a as a as a pincushion. You know, Baltimore is a great city, and Baltimore has taken its share of hits. Uh, but Baltimore is going to be back. Baltimore is coming a resilient back. city, and it's it is coming back, and it survived times of war and peace and poverty and riots. It's a resilient city, and it's a it's a city of great neighborhoods and great people. Baltimore's going to be thriving, once you know, long after this guy's been tossed into the ashtray of history. Um, uh, and frankly, that can't come soon enough. Baltimore is a city of people like State Senator Mary Washington, of Jill P. Carter. Baltimore is a city with people like Corey V. McRae. Baltimore is is a city of people like Brandon Scott, and I, I got to tell you, Lynn, Baltimore is better than Donald Trump. It always has been, and it always will be. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a craft beer fan. You, you've heard that before <laughs> a couple I've heard. of times, and and uh, and I, I I am such a craft beer fanatic that I actually organized my I actually cataloged my my summers by the beer I was hanging out with over the course of that summer and I'm always going to remember 2019 as a summer of bling universe and you might be saying Foxwell where in the fuck are you going with this but I I, I, I remember and you, I know you, you've done that a few times on this show but I, I, I remember when, when Trump made his attack about Baltimore and called it a, a rat infested mess and said god awful things about this city and and was walking and shooting at the wounded basically and 
I came home from vacation early, and I and I went to Union Craft. Well, this is a this this is a this is a, an American success story. It's also a Baltimore success story. Three guys uh, who were who were longtime friends, college classmates, decide to indulge their passion of brewing craft beer, and they some you can call it inspired, you can call it insane. They'd say it's a little bit of both. They took title to a 140,000 square foot old Sears Roebuck distribution warehouse and turned it into one of the biggest craft beer meccas uh, in the state on the East Coast. And every year they have a big anniversary party. And I came back this very Saturday after Donald Trump said those horrible things about Baltimore. And I, I went to that party, the seventh anniversary party of Union Craft. And I saw thousands of people, black and white, all different ethnicities, uh, different socioeconomic groups, didn't matter, coming together in a spirit of peace and love, just having good beer, enjoying good music, having good food and good times. And I, and I was drinking Bling Universe throughout that whole night, and I felt it the next morning. But I, what I always remember is basically it was a beautiful elegant way of basically thousands of people telling Donald Trump to fuck himself because well, this is a, and, 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 and they, it, it wasn't a protest it wasn't it, it didn't have to be said with words it just it was a, it was a beautiful evening that showed that as core Baltimore is still good people in good communities uh, they're it's capable of coming together and rising to the occasion there are many, many more days like that in Baltimore. Len, Baltimore has a special place in my heart, and we could go on and on, but we won't. And I'll just say this, that, look, I first was introduced into Baltimore City as a little boy growing up in western Maryland, and my parents, working class, middle class people, when they would scrounge together a few extra bucks to take me as a five- or six-year-old, maybe even younger, into a Baltimore Farmer Orioles games in the 90s, you know, when it was Raphael Palmero was a hero, Cal Ripken was a hero, Brady Anderson and B.J. Surhoff, uh, Mike Messina. I mean, names that we could we could talk baseball all night, and we'll mention your Nationals, Lynn. But going into Baltimore City to see a baseball game was probably one of the best highlights of my childhood. And, and I'll tell you, too, hey – you know as well as I do that the Hagerstown Suns is nothing to sneeze at. I grew up watching the Hagerstown Suns. In fact, I think when I was a little boy, I'd ride my bike down to the Suns games because we used to live in the city of Hagerstown. And you could get into the game for only a couple bucks. And that that's the beauty of living in a small city like that, man. It really was. I, to- I totally agree, man. Um, first, first Oriole game I ever went to, Memorial Day weekend, 1978. Back when back when you could still cross the Bay Bridge from the Eastern Shore to the Western Shore on Memorial Day weekend and do it in less than five hours. That's a different story. Orioles versus the Cleveland Indians. Mike Flanagan, God rest his dear soul, Mm -hmm. against David Clyde. Indians beat the Orioles, unfortunately, that day. Uh, The game took an hour and 57 minutes. Uh, We sat up in the nosebleeds. And I walked out and saw that field at Memorial Stadium. I thought it was the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen. And that day I fell in love with, I fell in love with baseball. I always loved opening day when we would 
we would try to get tickets. We'd go down, and it was so exciting where, you know, you never knew who you'd see down there, but you'd always see somebody you know. At, and it was just a wonderful, a wonderful childhood memory. But, Len, I, I want to talk to you briefly. Now that we mentioned the late uh, Elijah Cummings, and I believe his funeral service is this Friday. He's going to lie in state uh, in right. in the Capitol. And, and well-deserved, an honor that is only bestowed upon America's very best. And I got to, you know, I, I'm thinking, and and we always hate to do this, but as some as people in politics, we have to think, well, what's going to happen next? What's the what's the plan? What's the succession? And talking a little bit about what happens now that Elijah Cummings has passed, we have a there's a, a we have a state constitution that dictates that that succession plan and it's all very well written out and the governor has 10 days to call a special election lynn it it looks right now that the the late the the late house oversight committee chairman's spouse dr maya rockamore cummings who also serves as the maryland democratic party's chairwoman she appears almost a lock for this seat what do you think about the process what do you think about uh, the the race to replace him in. Do you think Dr. Cummings is the likely successor to her husband? Well, she certainly has. She she certainly looked good at this stage of the process. Obviously, as as uh, the late Congressman Cummings' widow and someone with a unique set of political skills and unique talents in her own right. Uh, you know, she she contemplated a, a run for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination last year and decided that it just wasn't the right time for her. And she has taken over the uh, chairmanship of the democratic party. And I think by all accounts has acquitted herself well. And she and uh, my boss, uh, Peter Franco have a, have a good working relationship. Um, but I, I gotta say, it, it, I've been around a long time and you start to see, when you've been around as long as I have, you start to see history repeat itself. And, I gotta think that in a way, Congressman Cummings would would be would be interested, if not amused, at, at the the political scramble that's about to happen, because he came to power in a, under a, a unique set of circumstances in 1996, when then Congressman Kwasi Mfume, his predecessor in the seventh congressional district. Leaves yep. decides to leave Congress to become the national chairman of the NAACP. It saw, set off a race, and it was it was 1996, so it was the the midterm election in which you know, members of the legislature can run for a higher office without sacrificing their own their own Senate or House seats. And Brian, I encourage you if you haven't done so already to go back and look at that look at that uh, look at that election because. Half the Maryland General Assembly from Baltimore City was in that race. I mean, you had <laughs> Kenny Montague and Tiger Davis and Dolores Kelly from Baltimore County and uh, uh, Salima Marriott and obviously Congressman Cummings, Frank Reed, the uh, the uh, estimable pastor uh, from Baltimore City. I mean, it was it felt like a cast of thousands, and Congressman Cummings won the race going away. I believe Senator Kelly was was uh, the second place finisher, but it was a distant second to Elijah. And that was a wild scramble. And that was kind of like a political backdrop to 
it was already a very eventful session. So I say that just for some historical backdrop to how Congressman Cummings came to national power in his own right, but also just to say that in these races where you have a multi-candidate field and you may, you know, and who knows how the voter turnout's going to go, you just don't know. It's a very unpredictable environment. But yes, I would have to agree at this point, knowing what we know now, um, my Rocky Moore Cummings would have to uh, be considered at least at the starting gate as the front runner in that race. What are some of the other names that you've heard tossed out? Of course, Josh Kurtz of Maryland Matters has written about this, and it, it looks like she wants the seat, and it would make perfect sense. And and quite frankly, it would be a, a welcome addition to a an all male uh, federal delegation. Len, we, there's no females in our our current delegation, and it certainly would would make sense politically and aesthetically. But uh, do you do you anticipate other people jumping into this race as well? Maybe a, a Corey McRae, for instance. Sure. Well, again, I just want to for your for your listeners, I just want to call out the fact that this is what is known in the parlance of Annapolis politics as a free throw. And again, what do I mean by that? It's that, you know, delegates and senators in Annapolis stand for election every four years. So they were just elected in 2018 or reelected as the case may be. And they only have to stand again before the voters for reelection until 2022. So they don't have to give up their seat in order to run. So aside from the rigors of, and, and, and and it's a relatively compact congressional district. I mean, some of these districts in Maryland, Ryan, as you know, the Eastern Shore stretches from Tawny Town in the northern reaches of Carroll County all the way down to God's country of Crisfield. And it, it's it not forever and a day just to traverse the, the breadth and width of that district. The, the 7th District, by comparison, is because you're talking about you know, the geographic center of the state, the, uh, an urban population center in Baltimore and entering Baltimore County suburbs and Ellicott City. It's a relatively it's a relatively small district, so it's not as difficult to get out there and campaign and go door to door and do grassroots. I, th- I think you could see a, 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 a sizable field, and I think you'll have some other credible candidates. And you hear the names. I mean, you hear you know Corey McRae and yeah. and uh, and Antonio Hayes, uh, some that you know have been tossed around as possible um, people of federal ambitions, like Brooke Learman and Bill Ferguson. Uh, they they happen to not live in Congressman Cummings's district, but rather in Congressman Sargent's district. So, yeah, yeah. So they they would not be uh, they're not being discussed as much for for this particular seat. But no, I I think you're going to especially because you're not giving up anything. There's no harm in doing it, and uh, I, I think I think you could see. I I think there's going to be a certain amount of difference. That certainly no one's going to be talking about it before Friday because that would be grossly unseemly but i think after the after the an appropriate period of mourning then i think you'll see people start to make some moves and i think going into 2020 as things are still relatively quiet in maryland politics uh you know excluding perhaps the Kerwin commission and we'll talk about that but len this could be the big topic of the year and i will tell you one person who will not be running for that office and 
I think it's very obvious that in a warehouse coming to you somewhere outside of Baltimore City, there's someone digging through a healthy Holly book right now wondering when the next payoff is, and that would be Mayor Catherine Pugh. I'm sorry, former Mayor Catherine Pugh, who looks like she might be going to jail. It doesn't look good. Um, <laughs> it doesn't look good at all. As as George Costanza said in that famous Seinfeld episode with the with the cashmere sweater, was that wrong? <laughs> Should I have not done that? If someone had just said that sort of thing is frowned upon around here, well, maybe I wouldn't have done it. Um, now, all kidding aside, it, it doesn't it doesn't look good. But oh. but you know, but you know, Ryan, when you talk about people like Corey McRae and Antonio Hayes and Young, you, you mentioned Brandon Scott earlier, and, and uh, we, Mary Washington's not being talked about for the for the congressional seat, but her name is is surfacing more and more as a potential mayoral candidate. It just reflects the fact that Baltimore is developing a a one of the most precious assets that you can have in politics, which is a deep bench. A deep bench of candidates so, who not. All- who have significant experience look at someone like Mary Washington who would be almost overqualified to be in Congress, a fundamentally decent human being with nothing but talent and upward trajectory in her career. Uh, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, there were, I mean, and, and there are times, there have been times in the past where you haven't had that level of depth uh, in Baltimore City, we certainly have it now. We've started to see the generational change, and um, you know, I lived in the, I lived in the District of Columbia at the time when everything they're saying about Baltimore now, they were saying about the district then. The murder capital of the world, the city's infrastructure is falling apart, rampant corruption, all that, all that stuff. So Anthony Williams, uh, a technocrat a money money person come to power and he set through his own leadership he set the district on a trajectory that took it to where it is right now which is one of the most flourishing and economically and cultural vibrant culturally vibrant urban areas in the world and the district of 2019 bears virtually no resemblance to the district uh that he that he uh, inherited in 1998. And it just goes to show leadership, executive leadership, good leadership can change the outcome. And so whether it's, you know, regardless of who wins Elijah's seat or who wins uh, the mayoral race, um, I hope they work collaboratively. I hope they serve with competence and integrity and in so doing restore the confidence of a very shaken electorate right now because the city is taking a share of hits and I'm not sure how many more hits it can afford to take. Len, I would be remiss if I did not mention that another Baltimore City great has passed on an internal life. Former mayor, Baltimore mayor, Thomas, that's young Tommy D'Alessandro III, the brother of Nancy Pelosi, died last week at 90 years old he suffered a stroke or complications of a stroke. And in a statement, Nancy Pelosi wrote that her brother was the finest public servant she had ever known who dedicated his life 
to Baltimore City and talk about one of the Maryland political greats. You just hear that name. You hear the name D'Alessandro, and uh, if if Corey and Antonio and Mary are where Baltimore is, then D'Alessandro is where Baltimore was. Hmm. And it was a it was a, it was a it was a ta- it was a town of it was a town of immigrants. I mean, that's that's the thing that, that's the thing that Trump and his acolytes always choose to forget that we are a nation of immigrants, and everything they say about today's you know. Uh, Latino and Hispanic immigrants they were saying about the Irish and the Italians generations ago and I, I, I've heard from relatives who grew up living in Baltimore just the pride that not only Italian immigrants but other European immigrants had and the success of Big Tommy and then Little Tommy who rose up from the neighborhoods to become national powerhouses Um you know what, man? We live in a hell of a country. We live in a great we, country. Oh, we do. And Len, I want to think ahead to another important political topic that has been absolutely consuming Maryland politics for the last month or so. And the Kerwin Commission is a topic that I am profoundly concerned about and I'm I'm pleased to see how much the the commission has worked hard to put forth these education recommendations but Len we cannot talk about the Kerwin commission without at least highlighting or more so bringing into the conversation the concerns of hun- or of millions of taxpayers in the state of Maryland who have expressed reservations about this $4 billion proposition. And I, I don't say that lightly. And I, I see many Democrats who have said, we need to spend the money. We need to spend the money. We, and they, instead of, uh, they resort to political, I guess, just standard talking points instead of, being straight with people that this is going to cost a lot of money and it's going to fall to the counties and someone is going to have to pay for it. And there is no poll that can be released that will make, that will convince me to believe that Maryland are Marylanders are ready for massive tax increases. I don't see the public support for this. And regardless of how much they want to criticize the governor on, I guess, accepting dark money. I mean, look, I'm not saying anything, positive or negative about it. but the governor has a right to raise as much money as he wants to run a public relationship against it and Larry Hogan has been rather successful in that act of running public relations campaign Len can we afford these recommendations and, and another thing is I saw that Talbot County's share where you live your home is going to take a huge hit and I don't think there's any proportionality to what they're asking local jurisdictions to pay. Brian, I speak as the um, – I'm not speaking here as Peter Francis, Chief of Staff. I'm, I'm speaking as a guy with two kids in the Talbot County public school system. I have a daughter who's a sophomore at Easton High School, and I have a son who's at seventh grade at Easton Middle School. So 
I'm as much of a stakeholder in this conversation as anybody. But to me, this whole thing is emblematic of some of the worst trends that we have in Annapolis. And I just have a couple of points I want to make for your listeners. And I'm probably going to get myself in trouble, but good heavens, it's certainly not the first time on this show, and it won't be the last. (laughs) First of all, this is emblematic of a political culture in this town, and by town I mean Annapolis, where we where we define our commitment to the issue, in this case, education, exclusively by how much money we are willing to spend rather than by the outcomes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ryan, I consider myself a reasonably well-informed guy. I, I keep up with – it's my job to kind of keep up with things going on around town. I don't know everything that's in this body of recommendations. I really don't, and I don't think they're talking. And no one's talking about the outcomes. We're just talking about, you know, uh, about the money. Give us the money. And and they're asking and they're asking politicians. And I'm not just talking about legislators. I'm talking about good county executives and 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 uh, and who run in, in uh, purple purple counties and run close races. They're they're, they're asking. They're asking people like Johnny O and Stu Pittman and others to get out and support um, Calvin Ball. When they're not even talking about what's in the recommendations. They're not one just walking around saying, well, where are you on Kerwin? Well, what the hell is Kerwin? I mean, this is some of the worst branding I've ever seen. Kerwin is just the name of the former chancellor of the University System of Maryland. <laughs> but we just, we just talk about it in this Annapolis shorthand. It's not the... It's not the commission to ensure universal literacy. It's not the task force to ensure 100% graduation rates. It's not the task force to eliminate the, the technology divide. It's just, where are you on Kerwin? And it's $4 billion over 10 years. But do you care about the kids or do you not? And, and you know, people are tired of that exclusionary rhetoric where if you, not even if you oppose, but if you're at least, Asking the question, well, who's going to pay for it and how much is coming out of my wallet? If you even ask those questions, well, then you must not you must not support the public schools and you must not care about the kids. And I think a lot of people uh, have come to the end of their rope on that sort of on that sort of culture. They're going to have to get out there and make the case and talk about outcomes, not just input, not just the money. But what we're getting in return for our investment, they're going to have to be honest about who's going to pay what and how that money is going to be raised, whether it's sales tax or marijuana or uh, taxing taxing vaping devices, whatever it is they come up with. I have to be honest about it. Um, and they're going to also have to demonstrate that they are competent enough and that they are accountable enough to spend the taxpayer dollars wisely. I mean, and this is a core tenet of Peter Franjo's political philosophy, Ryan. Taxpayers won't trust government, state or local, with transformational change if we can't even demonstrate an ability to get the little things right. And if you're someone in Baltimore, if you're a school parent in Baltimore City or Baltimore County, and your kids are going to a school without air conditioning in the year 2019, despite the fact that you've already had hundreds of millions of dollars in school construction money over the last 10 years, 
are you going to are you how do you feel about forking over more money to to the school systems? They came and keep the cold classrooms. Uh, they came and keep the classrooms hot in the cold months and cold in the hot months. So I'm so I'm I'm sorry to go off on that, but it it frustrates me because there are three good three elements any good rollout: substance, good mechanics, and and branding. And we all know what the substance is. The mechanics has been terrible, and right now the brand is is clear as mud. Where are well, you on Kerwin? Where are you on Kerwin is a question that is posed as a political litmus test. That if you are not with the, I, I guess the majority, then you are not a supporter of public education. And Lynn. Wouldn't it be nice in our lives if we could just forget every piece of nuance there ever was and just live our in our lives in a in such a I guess a a non complicated way of saying where are you on this issue without even having studied the, the facts or being explained something in depth? Where are you on Kerwin? Oh well, I'm not there, so therefore you must not be you must be an opponent. Of education, and it must be nice for people like Bill Ferguson to go out on Twitter and demand more money. Someone who represents Baltimore City, it must be nice for the Maryland Democratic Party to launch these uh, these political web bombs at at the governor. And I don't I don't ever see how them talk, how they're going to pay for it. They just keep saying, "Well, it's come out before." It's uh. It's been discussed by some of these policy groups about how we can raise the money. But if they're out selling something, Lynn, I mean, this is basic sales, right? You got to tell people what they're getting for their buck. And how come they they look at you cross-eyed that when you ask them, well, how much it's going to cost? And then they say, well, that doesn't matter. You need to support this plan because it's going to improve public education. How the hell do they think they're going to sell that to Maryland taxpayers? And do they have any idea? Do they have an inkling of sense to understand, Lynn, that the reason why Larry Hogan defeated Anthony Brown in the first place in 2014 was because taxpayers said Martin O'Malley and his administration never listened. They simply ruled out taxpayers' concerns and instead did as they pleased without ever considering what they wanted, and again and again and again, we heard this, and along comes Larry Hogan, a, a politically connected businessman with really not a whole lot of elected political – almost none actually – was worked in the Ehrlich administration. But he ran on a plan of pocketbook issues, and by God, he won that election and surprised the hell out of the Maryland political establishment and the Democratic machine. And he said, I'm going to do it my way. And then he won by 14 points last year. It's just like they don't get it. That's right. You know, and I think there's a reluctance to recognize that the people have been burned before. Yeah, I mean, there's poll after poll that shows that people are ready ready to support increased funding for education. Because you know what? We do care about our kids. And we do care about our public schools. And by God, we love our teachers. I know I can remember every teacher that my kids have ever had since pre-K. Okay. But, you know, we passed the lottery in this state. 
with the expectation that every dime raised by the Maryland lottery that wasn't used to for administrative costs was going to go into the schools. Well, Ryan, how'd that work out? It didn't happen, did it? It went into the general fund. Then we passed two rounds of slot machine expansions in the state of Maryland. Remember slots for tots? It was going to, if you don't support slots, well, then you're not for the kids. Well, you know, uh, it took us 10 years for, and, and, and the pushing of Larry Hogan to actually uh, ha- and, and actually force the, the, our state government, our state leaders, to honor the commitment that they made to the voters, to the kids, and to the school parents of this state. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're concerned about the cost. I'm not saying that, you know, uh, I'm not saying that, uh, that, that Peter Franco is, is opposed. Or so we're kind of keeping an eye out for it. We're, we're seeing how this thing shakes out. But, but, but Ryan, um, we're concerned about the cost, and we're also mindful of the fact that we've been down here before about all this money that's going to go for the kids. It wasn't long ago. Here's another one. We went um, uh, pensions. If you remember, the pension system was underfunded. Of course. And the Taylor and the Taylor Commission in 2011 came up with a plan to force tax uh, state employees to put more money in. Uh, they changed the vest the terms of vestment. Uh, they changed the multipliers, and they did a number of things that generate $300 million a year to reinvest in our underfunded state pension system. And how many times since 2011 do you think that $300 million of that money has gone into, into, into pension reform? Never. Because, because yeah. they, they, use that, they use that money raised as their own personal piggy bank. So you've been down that road before. You've got you to gotta tell us what the money's being spent for, Whose ox is being gored, and look at, and, and absolutely unconditionally commit to using that money for better outcomes, not just uh, not not just uh, to give a bunch of bureaucrats and administrators another pay raise. Speaking of speaking of going down the roads, Lynn, a big topic, of course, has been the Bay Bridge. How are we going to prevent? this massive traffic buildup. And in fact, Lynn, I was coming back in late September from a conference in Ocean City, and I'd be remiss to if I didn't mention that I stopped at the best place for craft beer that, right? in Easton. Can you guess? Uh-oh. Wait a minute. Hang on. Let me think here. Uh, it wasn't Red Jimmy's Bar and Grill. It must have been... <laughs> Snifter's Craft Beer and Wine Bistro, conveniently located in the Eastern Marketplace, right? Snifter's Craft Beer and Wine Bistro, owned by the the incomparable Joe Petro, who welcomed me with open arms, who sat me down at the bar, who introduced me to his menu, and I had a little bite to and eat. And you also to Lexi, Lexi Sorbonnier, right? Who Your introduced server that me. day was, was Lexi. Yes, and I think it was me who may have convinced her to take a job with the comptroller. Lexi's coming on on our staff in just a couple of weeks, and uh, young graduate of Salisbury University. And you know, Ryan, I'm very very proud to always surround Peter and and myself for that matter with people who are younger and smarter than us. And uh, we found another good one. 
So, Lexi, if you're listening tonight, and I hope you are because you'll be texting on this tomorrow, uh, we're talking about you, and we can't wait to have you aboard in Annapolis. But go on. You were were making a point. Well, I was glad to hear that she came on board. And so I stopped – not only did I stop at Snifter's, but I I crossed the Bay Bridge, and I noticed – and I kept driving up 50 to to hit back on – you know, to go back up 495 and 95. And I – and I'm looking at the traffic, and I'm thinking to myself, there never has been a time in my life that I have seen traffic this far back. Lynn, I guarantee I think it's backed up to Bowie. I, I, I don't even know what to say. It, it, it's so incomprehensible that we have this problem, and I can't imagine being a motorist stuck in a car that long on 50, taking hours of my life away all because of yeah. that we have an antiquated system right at the Bay Bridge. And I know that your boss, Peter Francho, has advocated with doing away with the toll booths there, which I think is probably the right solution to to speed up traffic and to to increase the flow. Now it's not gonna completely it's not gonna completely alleviate the traffic right. jams, but it's a start, Lynn. what are we gonna do about this problem? Well it's listen, um first of all, obviously we need to maintain our our schedule of infrastructure repairs and maintenance. And uh, if the bridge needs to be redecked, the bridge needs to be redecked, and we ex- we we understand that. That said, I used to work in the Maryland Department of Transportation, and I I worked at the time for John Percari, the Secretary of Transportation under Paris Glen Denning, and we had a similar project. Uh, on in Montgomery County, it was the redecking of three bridges on the outer loop of the Capitol Beltway. And he had me out there not 18 days in advance, like 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 I heard was happening here. He had me out talking to businesses and chambers of commerce and local governments 18 months in advance. I'm not making that up. 18 months before, getting getting local employers and chambers of commerce and local governments to buy in on ride sharing and van pooling and carpooling and flex scheduling and uh, teleworking and things, transportation demand management techniques. We put in an entirely new bus service called Beat the Beltway Blues that ran from New Carrollton to NIH, the Bethesda Naval Center, downtown Bethesda, uh, an entirely new bus route that was part of the state highway contract as a traffic mitigation measure. The point being, we had a complete strategy in place. We, we weren't in a situation where we were forced to wing it at the last minute. And that's the frustration that, and I have to say, all the things that I just described, Peter French, during his role as the House Transportation Committee chairman at the time, he got us the money to be able to do it. So he and I both saw that project unfold. And what's frustrating us right now is that that same level of planning and foresight hasn't come about. And so they're having to make all these adjustments and plans on the fly, like shutting down the westbound westbound span of the bridge in order to let eastbound traffic come through when it's backed up 14 miles, uh, and waving traffic through with you know without even paying the tolls. That's what happens when there's an absence of planning, and it's and it's damn frustrating. So, yeah, Peter has uh, Peter has talked about removing the toll booths and to his. To his high credit, Larry Hogan has agreed to do that, and we salute him for it. Um, 
What's the mechanism then for, for collect? What would be the mechanism then for collecting tolls? Sure. So, you, uh, so most uh, most interstate most interstate highway tolls now are going through a, a system where you either have where the, you either have uh, readers uh, at ground level or overhead on, positioned on overhead cables where uh, right. you have you have readers, smart readers that are capable of communicating with the transponder, the Easy Pass transponder in the vehicle, and deducting the value from that. Right. From the from the stored purse, or if that doesn't exist, the camera mecha- the camera device snaps a photo of the license plate and then yep. sends the registered owner of that vehicle a thing in the mail. And it's happening every it's happening all around the country. Um, it, it's outdated technology. We don't need these big clunky toll booths to provide an a, you know, an unnatural um, traffic restraining uh, device. So that's one part of it. Ultimately, we're going to need a third Bay Bridge span. I think that's becoming yeah. increasingly clear just because of demand. And that study is going through, and we'll see when that shakes out. But in the meantime, this project has to happen, but this project also has to happen in a much better, more orderly and better planned way than it has up to this point. Lynn, I agree. And people want to go to the Eastern Shore and when they want to come, when they come back. We don't want to be sitting in this soul-sucking traffic, and I, it's just unacceptable. And I was thinking the overhead transponders, it would be something very similar to what we have here in Montgomery County on the ICC, where we have an easy pass, and it just simply deducts the money. Uh, and it, it's right. a very easy, simple, and system, and non-complex system to install over the Bay Bridge. Lynn, I wrote a piece tonight, and I know you've been in, in class, and as we wrap up the show, I, I, I'm, I'm excited for you to read to see what you think about it. But I put together a story on a minordetail.com this evening about the Republicans having an opportunity to capitalize on whomever might become the next Senate president. And as we learn, the Senate, Repu- the Senate Democrats or, and the caucus, they're meeting this Thursday – and Mike yep. Miller is expected to update. Now, my sources have been telling me that, Ms. That, that Senator Miller, Senate President Miller, he's not expected to, to step down from the Senate entirely, but instead he's expected to give up the Senate presidency, remain in the Senate, and then retire at the end of three years. Now, that's just what I'm hearing. Of course, no one knows what is going to happen. No one knows right. what Mike Miller is is going to say on Thursday, but I do suspect that there would be some kind of change, which then would open up a Senate a, a Senate race for the first time in what thirty thirty three years. Well, since Mike Miller himself took the uh, yeah assumed the Senate presidency upon the ascension of Mickey Steinberg to the office of Lieutenant Governor under William Donald Schaefer. That's right, in nineteen eighty six. Yeah, the same year that uh, the same year that. Uh, Clay Mitchell became uh, became uh, Speaker of the House when Ben Cardin moved up to the House of Representatives. A, a legend in, in and of itself. And Len, one of these days we all have to go down to twenties together. That would my be God. my. Isn't that, isn't that true? I, Brian, I, I can't he, wait for you. I can't wait for you and I to go twenties on some cold, windy, bleak, windswept day in the dead of winter. <laughs> 
and get and get and get and get some of their oyster fritters and some oyster oh. stew right in season and sit and swap and talk politics with Clay, Clay with Clay Senior, the keeper of the flame, and some of the other locals, and just talk politics throughout the, uh, throughout the afternoon. It would be we would have we will have so much fun. It, it and something that we got to plan. That is something in the making, Len. As I mentioned, currently there's four candidates that are being discussed as potential replacements for Senate President Miller. One is Guy Gazone, two is Doug Peters, three is Paul Pensky, four is uh, Nancy King. And then on the peripheral, I hear names. Somebody mentioned Bill Ferguson. Another someone mentioned uh, <laughs> Cheryl Kagan and... Uh, I, and then there's uh, I've heard Brian Feldman as well. Len, at this point, I think the calculus, it, it, it I think it's leaning towards Doug Peters, and I don't know. He seems like the 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 flamekeeper. He seems like the he would be the moderate alternative. Paul Pensky, of course, would be the the liberal lion, and should should Mister Pensky be hoisted into such a job, I'd imagine that the, ben- the 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 Republicans could potentially benefit. And that's what my piece is all about, that there's some seats up next, you know, in 2022. How, how would a Senate that could move more progressive and align more with the House, how would that impact the races in 2022? And so that's what I took a look at, and that's the piece that I wrote about. Well, isn't it interesting what you just said? Think about it. The more moderate candidate from Prince George's County, uh, you know, more of the uh, more of the institutional keeper of the flame, squaring off against some more liberal activist members of the body, and Republicans positioned to maybe have a role in the outcome. Doesn't that just sound an awful lot like the House succession battle that we just went through back in the spring? Yeah. It's yeah. it's funny how it's funny how politics may have circumstantial differences, but there are some certain similar biorhythms. It's interesting. I, I hear the same thing, uh, Ryan. That Senator Peters seems to be, you know, no, no one knows what's going to happen, but Senator no. Peters does seem to be gaining some uh, perception of momentum and and strength in this uh, this kind of quiet um, subterranean battle to succeed Senator Miller. What's fascinating to me is that Senator Peters, by virtue of his politics, is emblematic of a generation of senators that were thought to be kind of leaving the stage. You know, there's kind of moderate Catholic senators, uh, more more to the center right than some of their more liberal counterparts on social issues, good Democrats, but not going as far as some of the young, you know, uh, uh, Uber liberals uh, would like them to go. So you know, we've seen people like Ed DeGrange and Ed K. Smyre and Jim Roby and before that Phil Germano and others over the past few years, you know, leave the chamber. And now Doug Peters, who kind of is really in that in that moderate Democratic tradition, could come up, could wind up being the the presiding officer of the state Senate. And it would be interesting to see a if that happens and b how he reconciles his own political inclinations with the the leftward 
trajectory of the Senate of, of recent years. So it's fascinating. But then again, if we if we're talking about the House race three days before a meeting like this, we would have said, "Well, Maggie McIntosh hasn't wrapped up, right?" Well, so, that's we 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 could not have been more, I guess, surprised by that outcome. No one knew what was going to happen walking into that May first, this the epitomous May first this year, where. 50 members of the press, and that's no joke, we stood in anxiety before that caucus room and waited and waited and waited until the very afternoon. And going in, it could have been Derek Davis, it could have been Maggie, but they came out with Speaker Adrian Jones. And who knows what kind of consensus is going to happen in uh, this this upcoming race. I think it's going to be and fascinating. There's, and, there's still, and there's still so much, man. There's still so many deals to be cut, and so many, sure. and and so many conversations to be had, so many old rivalries and resentments to be played out. <laughs> and the only ones who know what's really going on are those senators themselves. And there's only so much they're going to tell the rest of us. Well, I'm going to be waiting just as you are to see how this all plays out. But Lynn. It's 10 o'clock here. Uh, I don't know. Are you back home yet? I just pulled into my driveway. We started this conversation uh, uh, somewhere around uh, the Davidsonville exit, and I am now home. <laughs> so thank you for, thank you for accompanying me on my long drive back to Easton, buddy. It's, it was my honor and privilege. Len Foxwell, um, as our, our resident guest host, our, our resident guest uh, analyst and just all around our his our history book for Maryland politics. I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you for coming on on a Monday night. I'm glad that we could do this. I'm glad that we could have a long form discussion on things that matter to us, like Maryland politics and uh, the future, and looking to the past as well to understand the present. So, Lynn, I I hope you'll keep up with. Uh, <laughs> I hope you'll you'll keep up with. Um, with with some some things that we're we're doing and when i say that i mean i'm going to the waterfowl festival here in a couple of weeks and i hope we might be able to get together oh man ryan i look forward to see i'll be at the waterfowl festival i can't wait to spend time with you and kim we're going to go have a great time have some shore boys crab soup and then the four of us i promise you we're going to go over to snifters uh i'm going to have some great uh lens picks on tap Joe and Lex and the gang will be there, and we'll just have a great time. Well, I'm glad that we're already putting this plan into motion because I've been to the last five or six waterfowl festivals, but I've never had the opportunity yet to hang out with Lynn Foxwell at probably Easton's best event of the year. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's, Maryland's most beautiful town will never look any better than it does that second Saturday in November. Man, I can't wait, and I'm thrilled that I'm going to be walking down Harrison Street uh, in their their, uh, L.O. Bean hunting gear with you and uh, (laughs) just having a great time, man. That's that's right. Lynn, as always, my friend, be well. Uh, Please stay in touch, and I will see you very soon, um, if not sooner. So thank you you again for your time. You got it, pal. Talk to you. Bye-bye. All right, brother. Len Foxwell, Chief of Staff to Maryland Comptroller Peter Franco. And on that, 
We will end the show. Thank you, everybody, for listening. My name is Ryan Miner. You can find me on the web at a aminordetail.com, and my podcast is a aminordetailpodcast.com. Have a successful and happy week. You can subscribe to A Minor Detail Podcast on iTunes, CastBox, Overcast, or any application where you listen to podcasts. Like A Minor Detail Podcast on Facebook and follow the conversation on Twitter at AMD Podcast. If you or someone you know is interested in sponsoring A Minor Detail Podcast, please reach out to me at ryan at aminordetail.com. Thanks so much for listening.